there's a lot of, and by the way, and this thing bothers me greatly, you know, people copy each other mindlessly. Okay. They're like, well, customer success, everybody has one. I better have one too. Stop being mindless, you know, be inquisitive, be a critical thinker. It's almost like we have lost that ability to look at things like, does this really make sense? Why are we doing this? Right. They're just doing it because they think like, well, I'm not a good person if I don't have customer success. Of course, we have customer success. The whole company is based on customer success. Are you kidding me? From Foundation Capital, this is B2B a CEO, a podcast about the startup journey, about going from idea to IPO and growing from a founder into a CEO. On each episode, I speak with notable CEOs and founders and get their stories about what it took to build a company of scale and become a leader in the enterprise. I'm Ashu Garg, a general partner at Foundation Capital. This episode, my guest is the one and only Frank Slootman. Frank is a chairman and CEO of Snowflake Computing, which he took public in a blockbuster IPO in 2020. Frank is also the author of the new book, Amp It Up. Whereas most leadership books written by high-profile CEOs seem like a collection of feel-good abstractions and inspirational quotes, Amp It Up digs into the nuts and bolts and the blood and guts of what it takes to build a great company. It reads like it's written by and written for someone who's fought in the enterprise arena. I love the book, and I'm recommending it to all of my CEOs. In this episode of the podcast, I grill Frank about all the lessons learned in the book and beyond. From building a high-performance culture, to hiring and firing, to trends in the enterprise that drive him nuts. True to form, the always unfiltered Mr. Slootman doesn't hold back. This is a fun one. Before we dive into specific parts, is there a quick overview that you can do for us and tell us a little bit more about why you chose the title Amp It Up? I wrote an article on LinkedIn in March of 2018, and that was titled Amp It Up. And the whole premise of that article and then also of the book is, is that organizations, generally speaking, uh, have a huge amount of slack in them. And just being aware of that and being able to transform the slack into superlative performance is, is a real opportunity. I mean, obviously, you know, amping it up means, you know, you take up the energy level, you raise the standards, you raise the intensity, you narrow the focus, you pick up the pace, you know, urgency is a big part of it. So, you know, instead of revisiting strategy and second guessing who's doing what, you just run what you have, but much more aggressively with much more purpose mission posture, high mission awareness. And that, that tends to just completely, uh, you know, sort of bust loose the dynamic and just sort of infuse the organization, you know, with a, with a ton more fortitude. And the byproducts of that process is that all of a sudden you start to develop clarity around a lot of other things that all of a sudden become apparent that need to be done. You know, talent issues that needed to be addressed, talent gaps that need to be addressed kind of strategic problems that we have not been willing to face up to. When you get to this heightened level of high functioning in an organization, the level of clarity that becomes apparent um, starts to force and drive these issues. And we're in football season and, you know, 
I'm always amazed, you know, when I'm watching a football game, you know, I watch for the energy, I watch for the intensity. Are they inspired or are they just going through the motions, right? The exact same thing you see in sports, you see in business. You know, some teams are incredibly switched on and, and in sports, they have a fraction of a second higher intensity and speed. And all of a sudden they get to the quarterback one fraction of a second faster, you disrupt their play, all of a sudden they become rattled. You start sacking the passer, and before you know it, you know, the momentum is strong. Football is a very much a momentum game, right? So these analogies are, in other words, this is not just a business thing. This is kind of a, any walk of life has these dynamics, you know, embedded in them, and you can use them or, or you can suffer from them. <laughs> and it can go both ways. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So, so Frank, you alluded to this even in the last minute or so, and it's, and you talk about it a lot in the book, this notion that you should always put execution ahead of strategy. And you started to talk about it, but can you elaborate a little bit? Because it's somewhat counterintuitive for a lot of people. What I mean by that is not to say that strategy doesn't matter. It obviously does uh, hugely. But the issue is that you know, people over-rotate on strategy and they under-rotate on, on execution. And they often assume that they have strategy problems when they have execution problems. Like I just said, you know, when they, 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 they want to fire their VP of sales 15 times before they start facing up to their product uh, problems. Most sales problems are product problems, by the way. I had a boss once, Pat Gelsinger, at, when he was at EMC, he's now the CEO of Intel. But Pat said to me once, he said, no, and by the way, he quoted Andy Grove because he had actually said this. He said, no strategy is better than its execution. <laughs> so in other words, you can go a long ways with world-class execution. You will go nowhere without it, regardless of how good your strategy is, right? So in, in order to know whether you are suffering strategically or whether you're suffering from execution, you first have to get good at execution. And uh, once you're good at execution, strategic issues will start to sort themselves very, very quickly. They become very crisp. They become very, very clear. So, so that's that's the reason I think execution, uh, people need a double and triple and quadruple uh, down. Uh, everything will get easier on the strategic front when you do that. That's my point. And especially in Silicon Valley, where uh, we have a lot of, uh, lot of VC types that love to talk about strategy. And it's, a, it's, it's what I call a high-minded parlor game, right? And it's like, you know, we really need to examine how we do things here, you know, before we assume there, and there's something wrong with strategy. And I will tell you from all my companies, right, um, the, the, the companies that we left in the dust are the people that are constantly revisiting their strategy. And every week they have a new rank call. They have no conviction. They have, you know, in other words, they, 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 are, they, are, they are really insecure about their strategic commitment uh, that they have made to themselves. They get left in the dust. It's the people that are willing to trust their strategy and execute it to the best of their abilities that are gonna separate from you, okay? Those people are, are unstoppable. Now you do evolve strategically along the way. I mean, all our companies uh, have, right? But you know, there, there's a balance there that is very, very important that you understand the value of both and how they relate to each other. What are some of the most common sins or mistakes that you've seen early stage founders and CEOs commit? In the early stages, I think I just said it, is uh, don't call my baby ugly. <laughs> In other words, you know, do we have enough intellectual honesty to be able to process what is really happening? And uh, it, it's not that people aren't bright and smart. It's there is this, this mental block and they sort of repress the possibility that, hell, there's something wrong with 
what we've got here instead of no, 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 let's 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 open up to it, let's examine it, let's pick it apart and really be intellectually honest about what's happening and, and what's not happening. And that is extremely common with founders and startups. And it just delays the uh, inevitable. And, you know, often what happens is, you know, they sell the product a few times and they can quote a few people who are really liking the product. So that then constitutes evidence that we have a real business. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's not a real business. You know, you're, you're not crossing the chasm. All you have is anecdotal uh, evidence. And by the way, you know, founders can sell almost anything because they're eloquent, they're visionary, right? And then people are just mesmerized by the idea that, oh, I, I get the, and for the, for the super early adopters, those people will buy almost anything. And usually yeah. they, usually they do, right? But that's that's not proof, you know. I, I often say it's uh, the the only thing worse than selling nothing is actually selling something. And the reason I say that is when I sell nothing, I can just put a bullet into it and move on. The problem is when I sell a few, now I get hope. <laughs> I have lived through that. You feel like okay, one more deal, one more deal, but you never cross that chasm. Yeah, exactly. I have a definition for crossing the chasm and crossing the chasm is when you shift from business development to a sales model where you can sell with repeatability with a consistent yield on that investment. If you can do that, you have exited the chasm. But if you're still on a one-off basis, you know, selling opportunities with highly technical people and founders involved, you're still in the chasm. Okay. You have not developed a scalable model at all. But they think, you know, I have a couple of people that like me and maybe even some nice name brand customers. That means that I'm now viable. No, it doesn't mean that. Viability is really, do I have a repeatable, scalable, predictable sales model? If I can hire at random somebody on the street corner in Singapore and get that person productive in a certain amount of time. Okay. Now you're, now you got something. Okay. Until, you know, I, I can hire, you know, because if, if I have a good product, if I can sell it in New York, why can't I sell it in Amsterdam? You know, why can't I sell it in Tokyo, right? And by the way, if there's reasons why you cannot, I'd like to know what that is then. And, and Frank, this transition is a hard one because founders automatically assume that that salesperson in Tokyo or in Singapore is the problem as against yes. the fact that the product has rough edges or that the support that headquarters is providing is insufficient. Well, they also, uh, they, they have unreasonable expectations of salespeople. Salespeople cannot compensate for, uh, you know, for an inferior product market fit. They simply can't. They have very unrealistic expectations of what salespeople can and cannot do. Salespeople have to be highly enabled, you know, in their ability to, to sell, right? And they're not like product managers and founders, you know, really, really talented business developers, you know, essentially uh, people that can sell almost anything, you know, really, you know, versus a run-of-the-mill salesperson that has to be sent out there and go sell a product. That is a completely different proposition than having this incredibly technical founder, product manager, uh, let sale. So it's, I used to have uh, a lot of product managers, you know, complain about salespeople that they weren't smart enough and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, look, that's a good model. You know, if I have to hire only, if, if only smart people can sell my product, I'm in a world of trouble. You know, it's you a, hire them. yeah. And it's your job, by the way, as a product manager to enable you know, a very average person to be successful. You're just finally now understanding what your job definition is. The other thing that very technical founders often struggle with is letting go. You know, they've often never managed large teams because they were often architects or running small engineering teams. You've stepped into situations that had very technical founders. Have you experienced that? And sort of what advice do you have for technical founders who are struggling to let go? I mean, they're 
I have founders that are micromanaging every little expense in the company, and it's hard for the rest of the team at times. Yeah, well, that's, I'm sorry, but that's insanity. <laughs> um, look, you know, I mean, don't make founders do things that they are not naturally equipped for. Just because they're founder doesn't mean they're God, you know, and they, they can just administer and oversee a mod or everything that's going on. I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, when I joined Snowflake, we have two super talented technologists as, as founders, but uh, and they're very humble guys, by the way. Uh, they never, never wanted to be in, in real management oversight positions. So why would I force them into a role that's not natural to them and also one that they they don't want? And what you, what you need to do is you need to balance the need for scale and hardening and maturity and discipline with the power and the, the of innovation and creativity and problem solving. And you very rarely find that in one body, if ever. So I really separated the product organization, you know, but the founders are leading the innovation. And then, you know, I hired a top-notch, you know, global engineering executive, also super technical. But his role was the scaling and hardening and maturing and disciplining of the engineering organization. What was great about it, I now have best of both worlds, but in different bodies and they get along uh, famously and I don't make people do unnatural acts. You know, we make them do what they are, you know, what their God-given talents are. I wanted to shift gears and talk a little bit about some of the chapters on hiring and culture. You know, you talk about this notion of drivers versus passengers and why it's so critical for organizations to retain, to recruit and retain drivers. Can you define those terms? Yeah, it's probably a little bit different, uh, you know, for everybody. I mean, I talk about it at a, at a conceptual level as opposed to at a spec level where yeah. people don't have labels printed on their forehead, you know, where they say, oh, I'm a driver or I'm a passenger. But I think everybody knows, you know, that people's contributions in organizations is highly asymmetrical, okay? That's just the nature of things. There are some people that have extraordinary disproportionate impact on outcomes and other, that doesn't mean other people are useless. I mean, I'm not trying to make it out that way, uh, but there is an enormous difference in attitude and approach. And again, in all these intangibles that sort of live in the sort of the slack margin, you know, of the organization that become incredibly pronounced. And, you know, drivers are uh, unusual people. They have a chip on their shoulder. They they are they they need a highly empowered environment. They can't be on a leash. They certainly can't be on a short leash. Uh, a, you will not get what you want. They might even become dysfunctional. Eventually, they will leave. So, if anything, is a recognizing them, attracting them, retaining them, but then empowering them. Okay. In other words, you want to create the environment where these people run loose you know they you know wild, wild ducks are great but they still need to be able to fly in formation okay so and it's not like you know you, you can just go nuts and insane here right we're still part of an organization we're part of a team but these people they have extraordinary ambitions for what they're doing they have very very high standards and by the way you know drivers do not suffer passengers well i will i will guarantee you that yeah, and that's great it's own friction if yeah. you have to manage well but it, but that's good because drivers will get you more drivers okay and by the way, passengers will get you more passengers. So that's why this balance, um, by, the, by the way, every organization will have some of both, right? But because, you know, the, the population of passengers is very, very great, whereas the passengers and drivers is quite, you know, elite and small, and you need these people, 
right? Uh, I mean, I, I always feel that organizations like IBM and HP, I mean, eventually they become usurped by passengers and, you know, it's like swimming in glue, glacial pace, you know, they lose their ambition, their drive. And before you know it, they become companies that have no heart and soul left anymore. And they just, you know, IBM spent like 20 quarters buying their stock back, you know, it's like, you know, they, they didn't have one original muscle left in their body anymore. Right. How does that happen? Does anybody ever want to, and by the way, companies like GE that now are getting sort of dismembered into, you know, three separate companies. How did that happen? Right. It does happen. Okay. Unless we, you know, as leaders are very, very actively, you know, preserving our core innovative strength and muscle and our drive and our ambition. I often ask people, how do you think of yourself? Are you a driver or a passenger? And they kind of look at me with surprise, like, you know, what do you mean by that? And I'll give some more words to explain what I mean by that. And then the conversation goes like, well, of course they want to be a driver. Everybody wants to be a driver. But then what evidence do you have on your history, on your bio, that you were in fact a driver? Now, that's an interesting conversation. Okay. Let's talk about your aptitudes, you know, not just your experiences, right? And where, where were you the difference maker? Where were you the game maker, right? Frank, in the book, you talk extensively about how important it is to get the wrong people off the bus. It's definitely a lesson that a lot of other CEOs preach. And yet most CEOs struggle to do this on a consistent basis. Can you talk about what it took for you to make this one of your top priorities and how you go about it in your organization? You know, it, it is obvious and it's not obvious at the same time. And what, what I mean by that is it's, it's a cultural problem. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I've been around so long. I mean, I, I grew up in a time where, you know, you only get fired when, when there was an egregious situation, when you were so glaringly bad or your behavior was so glaringly bad that we did literally had no choice but to, but to separate. The separations were rare. It just didn't happen. You just had to manage people to a better, uh, you know, level of performance. And, uh, you know, over time, we've come to realize that's an insane posture to take, okay, because talent is a critical input into the equation. I have, when I was a younger man, you know, I waited out a lot of situations where, you know, I fairly quickly started to suspect, no, we don't have the right person, but then I would wait it out to become absolutely certain because I didn't want to be so rash that everybody thought like, God, that guy's a hatchet man. He just starts whacking people indiscriminately. So I was being this polite young man that just, you know, uh, waited situations out. And I realized over time I was doing not anybody any favors, you know, by, by being slow and waiting things out. And um, I find that people of course don't like confrontation. Who the hell likes to fire people? Nobody does. I mean, you're stepping on their soul. It, everybody, not, not everybody, but most people have empathy. They have, these people have families, they have children, you know, so this is really, really hard to do. But at the same time, you know, if you're a leader, you can't be a leader without confronting non-performance or substandard performance. You just simply can't because everybody knows it and you're not doing anything, right? So you, if you're a leader, you must act. And, and by the way, you know, odds are your organization will even know before you do. That's even worse. They already know it and you're still trying to find out. So over time, you know, I, again, it's a question of having your antenna out and, and really scrutinizing all the time, you know, is, is this a case of, well, yeah, it's kind of tolerable. I mean, I used to have salespeople tell me, oh, I'd rather have somebody in the world than nobody. Well, that's the wrong reflex. Okay. Nobody is better than somebody who is not performing. Okay. And again, that should be obvious, but again, people don't act that way. They avoid confrontation. They think nobody is watching and they tolerate mediocrity. 
much more, much longer than they should. Now, how, how do you deal with that? You got to steel yourself for it, right? You, I mean, I remember, uh, oh, I got to have been numerous times in sales with one of my sales leaders, you know, where I would tell him, I said, that person is not going to make it in this role. You know, and the guy would go like, what are you talking about? He's very popular and does this. I'm like, look, that person is not going to make it. I'm telling you right now. And of course, you know, six months later, they were like, yeah, you were right. I'm like, yeah, but how come I saw it six months before you did? Okay. They can't bring themselves to go confront situations quicker, earlier, because, you know, again, they have empathy. They don't like confrontation and therefore they don't do it. So you may say like, yeah, everybody understands you got to get the wrong people off the bus but they don't act on it and they will eventually act on it or they're going to be gone. But, you know, the delays in not prosecuting performance are devastating to companies. And uh, I always say, if you want change, there's no quicker change that happens than when you change the, uh, the individuals and the roles. Okay. That is one thing I've learned over the years. If you want change fast, you're going to have to make changes in the roles. Okay. And then, then it happens and it happens quick. Now, can you still be wrong? Yes. But, you know, you need, you need to be a rapid course corrector, you know, that you can, you can be doing really well in business. If you are quick to, to see problems, quick to see mistakes, quick to see bad decisions and just course correct. You know, I mean, Scott McNeely used to say fail fast. That's one of the best pieces of advice, you know, you can give anybody fail fast. And by the way, we use calibration sessions. Uh, a calibration session is where one of our leaders, like my direct report, they have to present how they think about their own staff, their own direct reports in front of the entire peer group to see if the peer group agrees with their assessment. And that's usually where we find glaring lack of congruence in the organization. That's, you know, one person thinks the person is great and the rest of the organization doesn't. Now you know you got a hell of a problem on your hands, okay? And that's good because now we know, okay? And we're going to act on it. We always come away with action items when we run these sessions every four months or so. And we talk in detail about every single person, what the experience across your organization has been. So you get your direct reports to calibrate every four months, three times a year. Yeah, well, it's not exactly four months because we have to sort of schedule it when we get everybody together, because we usually have to do like three hour and a half sessions to get through it. That's how much work it is. I mean, we're not, we're not casual or flippant. I mean, it's a really hard, detailed conversation. Everybody who has something to say is going to say it, and they're going to explain why they say it. And we all listen to what's being said. What do we know? Real information. And we're not trigger happy, uh, but we just, as a group, we decide, yeah, we can't tolerate this. Okay, we can't. We've got to make a change. Frank, as you rightly pointed out, when you get into a conversation, people are the passengers or drivers. Most people see themselves as drivers, even though very few are. Once they're in an organization, it's much easier to you know, identify them. You just see it. You see who takes leadership, who steps up, who leans in versus who's leaning back. It's a little harder to do when you're interviewing people and recruiting. Uh, any advice for young founders who haven't done this before? How do they, what traits should they look for when they're recruiting? Are well, there questions you found useful? It's actually not hard, okay? Because when you talk to their, uh, their peer group in prior companies where they worked, you know, you start asking these questions, you know, people can't answer them. You, you sort of have your answer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> People can't think of a single thing. It's like, that's, that's not good. Once you have that filter on, it actually becomes quite easy. The problem is if you don't have to filter on, you're not asking the right questions yet. You're not getting to this distinction yet. And the distinction is difficult. I, I remember 
you know, years ago in an all hands meeting, you know, some engineer in, in the audience said to me, he says, how do I know I'm not a passenger? I said, well, you better find out before I do, you know, and of course pe people were laughing, you know, think that, yeah, that's funny, but I had also a serious message and that is, look, you know, when you get home on a Friday night, the week is over, you know, can you look yourself in the mirror and go like, Hey, I mattered. I was important. I was a difference maker. I was a game changer. You know, it was absolutely important that I was there. Can you say that in the privacy of your own mind with conviction, not bullshitting yourself? Because that's that's a high standard. Hell, I still do that to this day. You know, I think back on what, what I did this week. It's like, was I just a passenger on the ship this week or did I do something, you know, that, that materially impacted what was going on? The reason this is important is not just that we become higher impact players. And employees feel that their drivers, they feel far more secure in their careers. They feel far more secure in their jobs. They just become the person they were meant to be as opposed to they're living in the shadows and hoping that nobody is noticing that they're not really making any difference to the equation, right? So you're helping, you're helping everybody by erasing the standard for themselves. You had a chapter in organizational design and you talked about customer success. And, and I think you were... Uh, it's not your favorite department. Let me put it that way. Yeah, I think I think customer success is is a fad. Um, literally, look, the whole company is is a customer success organization. Okay, you'd be insane to think any the fact that you think that is a separate organization. I mean, is in, is insanity. First of all, you know, the sales organization owns the 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 commercial relationship. The SC organization owns the technical relationships. The support organization owns every incident. You know that that emerges from the, the customer age, we have a professional services organization that plays customer set. It's like, wh why do I need to have a separate organization in a mix here, right? I mean, I find it's virtue signaling. I, I wanna show the world, you know, how high-minded I am and I really care about customer success. But what you're doing is, you know, you're, you're, you're starting to break your organization, right? Because if I have a customer success department, what are these other people doing? Are they now going to sit back and wait for these people to do some magic? And by the way, these people all come from the same organizations anyways. You know, they're, they're former support people, former, you know, salespeople, usually people that are not doing so well in other roles, by the way. That's how they end up there. But the analogy that I've used and why I so dislike this whole idea is sort of, you know, the federal government. You know, after 9-11, you know, did, did this incredible sort of gut check, like, oh, who failed here? Was it the FBI? Was it the CIA? And, you know, what do they do? They create a Department of Homeland Security, you know? It's like, okay, the solution is we're going to create another goddamn organization that's going to sit on top of all the other organizations. That really will be the solution to our problems. Why don't you just make the organization do their job in the first place, and then you don't need to do any of that stuff, Right. And this virtue signaling, uh, by the way, it's expensive. You're going to layer in a whole other organization. Uh, these are expensive people. And what are they going to do? They're going to advocate for the customer. The customer thinks it's like free money. You know, I got somebody that's going to go do my bidding at the company, right? Now you have dysfunction as well. And they're running around the organization and hitting up engineers and support people. It's just something if you have a functioning organization where there's no daylight between the functions, you absolutely don't need it. So I've blown up customer success, but I, I didn't fire these people. I just put them back where they came from. <laughs> so it's like the same monkeys are still there, just different tree, the same tree that we used to have, right? So there's a lot of, and by the way, and this thing bothers me greatly, you know, people copy each other mindlessly, okay? They're like, well, customer success, everybody has one. I better have one too. Stop being mindless, you know, be inquisitive, be a critical thinker. It's, it's almost like we have lost that, ability to look at things like 
does this really make sense? Why are we doing this, right? They're just doing it because they think like, well, I'm not a good person if I don't have customer success. Of course, we have customer success. The whole company is based on customer success. Are you kidding me? That doesn't come from the CEO on down. I mean, what are you talking about? You know? So Frank, you've been CEO of three different companies with very different sort of starting points. You know, you described one of them as a startup, another as a turnaround, and the third is a scale up. Can you share a little bit more about what's the good and the bad sort of of being a CEO of these three very different situations? You know, the, the, the thing that's hard about a startup is that you're a long ways away from viability. You don't even know whether you are viable or not. I remember there's that data domain. We went years, literally, I'm talking years, you know, with a product that was too small, too slow to address a real market. And then you still, you know, you're, you live in terror, you know, with high anxiety. And that's normal. So you, you kind of have to embrace that because it is what it is. There's nothing I can do about it. But the thing that I like about the startup is that it is so formative. It is so embryonic. You can have a meeting with the whole company in the hallway, right? The culture is something that you can just literally mandate and manhandle and, and just be in charge of. Whereas when you have a bigger organization, obviously, you know, it gets harder and harder. I, I still feel very proud of the work we did at Data Domain. Because, you know, when we started there, you know, we were one of hundreds of companies of that vintage. Nobody thought much of us, if anything. We had no customers. We had no products. We had no revenue. We a noisy nothing. market. Huh? It was a noisy market yeah. at the time. Oh, it was an insanely noisy market. But it's, in the end, you know, there were, uh, we had like 15 times the exit value of the next competitor. There were important lessons to be derived from that experience. And I, I described it in another book uh, called Tape Sucks, by the way. It was incredibly rewarding because of the, the fact that we sort of had to create everything from scratch. Um, so that's the charm of a startup. And there, there's an incredible intrinsic sense of fulfillment there, I think. And I think people that have run startups and, and been successful, they know that. You, you feel that like, God, I was the driver. <laughs> you know, there was no doubt about it. I had everything to do with the success of that company, right? So it's, it's immensely fulfilling uh, versus when a company like ServiceNow was, it had obviously enormous problems because it's, it became a huge company. But at the time, it was in dire straits operationally. I mean, any way you wanted to think about it. I mean, we came in there. It was like parachuting into a jungle fight, guns blazing, machetes out. And it was terrorizing because I had customers call me on a day-to-day -day basis. What the hell is going on over there? We were using a hosting service. I mean, to call that a cloud was just, you know, ridiculous. You know, we just couldn't even answer the most basic questions. I mean, our engineering department was our founder and a handful of cronies and that was it, right? And it was a San Diego company. So, you know, the staffing was just you, you couldn't even get your head around it. So we had to move very, very aggressively to sort of stop the insanity. And the, people were scared. Uh, you know, I had people coming to me like, we have to sell this company. We cannot, this will not work. And they were just scared. I had high anxiety probably for the first year and a half, two years, because I'd open up my email and overnight it would have been another, you know, major disaster. And it's not a great way to live. That's the negative. But the, the positive is that, you know, when you do wrestle it to the ground eventually um, and you stabilize it and you become, your weaknesses become your strengths, uh, which it did in our case, it was immensely rewarding that way. And people don't know that on the outside how, how hard that deal was in the first couple of years. I remember telling the boards this, 
I don't think you guys have any idea, you know, what, what went on in this place. And they didn't, you know, so, but they had enough sense that they, that they, they wanted, you. yeah, that they wanted to trigger a leadership transition and, and they were correct uh, on that. You know, on the scale up situation, which is clearly what Snowflake is or was and still is, you know, what was weird about Snowflake is it, it was a company that had clearly exited the chasm. Okay. <laughs> But they were still executing as if they were still in it. And, uh, you know, scale is a, is a very disciplined way of applying resources and deriving yield from those resources, converting them to yield. And it's a very different mode. Whereas when you're in the chasm, it's much more like looking for water in the desert and applying resources relatively randomly. Uh, you know, I think the board was very much, their mantra was, Spent to a billion. Well, you know, they didn't have to be told twice. You know, they were spending like drunken sailors. And I took one look at the PL, you know, for about five seconds. I'm like, well, there's a company with a lot of money, but zero discipline about anything. That really was the uh, the challenge for us. There was a lot of cultural problems as well. A company with, with incredible product, uh, incredible talent in pockets. But it, it was just, you know, dysfunctional and in numerous, numerous uh, ways. Now, I, I find that set of problems the easiest to wrestle to the ground. It's just because of my own, you know, sort of proclivities and uh, you know, how I am and, and how we do things. So we broke ourselves out of that mode hard and fast, but it was it was ugly, okay? Uh, of course, it's ugly. I mean, there's no way around it. it. It always is. But two years ago, we were 200 negative on cash. You know, we're going to be 100 positive on cash. I mean, you think that happens by accident? Um, and with such amazing growth. Yeah, and never mind the, the growth at scale. Yeah, not just the growth, but the growth at scale uh, that has never been done before in, in enterprise software. That's our show for now. You can find past episodes and subscribe to future ones wherever you get your podcasts or at foundationcapital.com. And if you like the program, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. B2B a CEO is a production of Foundation Capital, an early stage venture capital firm with over $3 billion in committed capital and 29 public companies to our name, including Netflix, Lending Club, TubeMogul, and Sunrun. At Foundation Capital, building companies is in our bones. I'm Ashu Garg, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm passionate about helping B2B entrepreneurs who are trying to solve hard problems. So if this podcast speaks to you, if you're a technical founder who's interested in scaling an enterprise startup into a massive business and scaling themselves into a true CEO, drop me a line.